0: Welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Rob Pickles, here with Coach Connor. Time is short, and we all want to make the most of what little we've got. We all ask the question of whether getting ready for a short run or ride is worth it, especially when we consider the need to change, fill bottles, and shower after. Some high-intensity intervals or a throwdown on Zwift might make sense, but what if the plan is an easier base ride? This is a question we have wanted to offer definitive science on for years. The problem? It's not something researchers seem too interested in studying. At best, we have a few indirect studies and some theories about how the physiology justifies it. As much as we wanted the deep science episode, today our three hosts... Grant Holicky, Trevor Connor, and myself bring a mix of science, experience, opinion, and anecdotes to debate the question of whether there really is a value to the short, easy ride. Along with our hosts, we'll hear from top experts in the field, including physiologist Dr. Steven Seiler, physiologist and coach of UAE Team Emirates Enigo San Milan, and recently retired ex-professional Brent Bookwalter. So keep it easy, keep it short, and let's make you fast.
1: Hey there, Fast Talk listeners.
0: You may remember my voice.
1: This is Chris Case and I'm excited that today's episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Alter Exploration, my new adventure cycling company. Alter Exploration crafts custom life-altering cycling trips that create opportunities for both physical and mental evolution. Journey with us and you'll learn how transformation begins where comfort ends. Alter's journeys will take you over hard scrabble climbs and through jaw-dropping landscapes. Our trips are best suited for those who could laugh at an adventurous twist of fate, for those who aren't perturbed by 20% gradients, and for those who would never think twice about turning back. Our journeys aren't so much a vacation as an exploration of you and the destination. At the end of each day, you'll be preoccupied as much by the transformative experience as by the satisfaction of exhaustion. Life altered. Learn more about my favorite adventure destinations and start dreaming at alterexploration.com.
2: Well, welcome to another episode of Fast Talk. This is an episode I have been excited to do for a long time, so really glad we're getting to it. I'm also gonna admit I'm kind of terrified as well because this is a question we have been asked a lot. It's a really fun topic. So I wanted to come into this episode super prepared with like 30 research studies, And I couldn't really find any because what we are talking about today, which we get asked about all the time, is is there really a value to that one hour slow workout? Slow so I mean we're talking cycling the one hour ride, if you're running the 20-minute run. But I get why people ask us about this. Everybody has busy lives, you have family, you have kids, you just begged your spouse to be able to go and hop on the bike and, and do this workout. It took a lot of sacrifice to get this hour. At the end of it, you're like, that didn't really feel like a workout. You wanna do something hard. You wanna beat yourself up. And we have made the case that actually you still need those easy rides. So we're gonna talk about it today. But like I said, the issue is, and, and Rob has said he's actually found some stuff, but for the most part, doing a study of an easy ride is kinda of not sexy. Everybody wants to study interval work. So finding research to back this up is difficult. And I think as we have this debate, a lot of what we're going to bring up is indirect evidence.
0: Yeah, Trevor, when I was looking for research for this, I really had to look outside the cycling world and yep. into team sports. And, and I actually, I found a decent amount. I'm really looking forward to bringing that up later in the episode. But before we start, I really have to have this one question answered. When we say easy, can we qualify what easy means before we go any further?
2: So I'm going to use the definition that you tend to see in the research when they do have the easy ride, which is 65% of VO2 max or max heart rate.
0: That makes me do math. (laughs) <laughs> How hard is that?
2: He's a scientist, not a mathematician, damn it. <laughs> 65% of
0: VO2.
2: So now. to give you the example, it's if your max heart rate is 200, you're riding at 135. So for a lot of us, this is a 120 heart rate, 130 heart rate. I can tell you putting that into power numbers when I go out and do that 65% ride. So let's say your your threshold powers in the 300s, 300, like 320, 330. This is a ride at 160 watts.
0: So well within a zone that we would call active recovery. Right. Zone one in a five zone model. Because here's the thing. When you say an easy one hour ride, Trevor, that's the majority of my training. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe for some other people out there. But I I do tend to do, you know, obviously that's at a a, a true zone two and a five zone model, 65, 70% of my threshold. So we're talking easier than that, something that really is just for recovery.
3: Yeah, and I think one of the big things that we get into with this and that I find interesting is that typically if you're talking to a professional athlete or professional cyclist and you're talking about their easy rides, the level at which they do those is really easy. Yeah. I mean, I have athletes that'll do the hour-long recovery ride, and the TSS for that hour is 12. And I'm trying to figure out where they (laughs) went and what they did that they got that low. And then I I asked my master's athletes to do a 45-minute easy recovery ride, and the TSS is in the 30s. So there's this big swing Mm -hmm. of what this can mean, but according to the research, if you're below that threshold... At zone one threshold or 65% or however you want to do it. There's not a whole lot of strain going into the legs or the f- system. Yeah. That's the point.
2: And that's hard for people to see. When oh, I yeah. go out and do one of these rides, I'll have a 25 TSS. Uh-huh. And you look at that and go, well, that's not driving up my CTL and what am I doing? Now? Right. Right. And this comes to the whole
3: point of this whole episode is, was it worth it? Yes.
0: Yeah, because what we know is that we're not getting a stimulus for adaptation out of this. But if that's not the point of doing it, then I think that that's quite all right. And so, yeah, I want to hear from... But
2: are we not? And that's going to be part of the debate here. Is there actually a stimulus? So, yeah, we've talked about the way to adapt. It's the fundamental principle of training is you produce a stress that's more than your body can handle. And in the case of this workout, it's neither hard nor super long. So absolutely you're not producing a big stress. So yeah, I agree with you. The, the argument should be, you're not going to adapt out of it. But what I have found interesting, the research is might not be that black and white. Shenanigans. Ooh, we're, we're going to have a debate here. Wow.
3: I'm just going to stand over here on this side and watch you two argue. I mean, texting on your phone. (laughs) yeah i'll I'll just go back to my (laughs) finish my email we are starting
2: this (laughs) just so everybody knows we are starting this episode 15 minutes late because grant was just sitting here texting on his phone
0: i told you i was ready i can do two (laughs) things at once guys i'm not texting i'm just responding to my athlete it was an email (laughs) it's totally different
3: it was an email emails are far more important than a text which means you
2: weren't ready to start talking
3: Oh, I'm ready to start talking. I'll, I'll talk while I
0: type that. It'll just come out weird. I'll just feel bad for whoever gets that email. Hey, guys, none of this is in the outline. just so. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough.
2: Who invited this guy?
3: <laughs> well, yeah, well I, I do love how, just so everybody knows, this is in the introduction of our outline. It says, this is where we usually introduced our guest. But today it's just Grant, <laughs> which doesn't make me feel bad or anything. You know, doesn't make you know the fact that I carved out time for this doesn't
0: make me feel bad about it or anything. I feel good about myself. I think that Grant has realized that when the first three or four options we have fall through, yeah, that we yeah, just yeah. it rolls down. Yeah, to that's head. when I get called. Grant'll do it. Oh, guys, I got nothing else to do. Sure, right. I'll come in.
3: Mikey'll eat it. He'll eat anything. <laughs>
2: I really want to argue, but the truth is I put that in there just to test if Grant reads the outlines. <laughs> now you know. Now you know. And he does. <laughs> so let's actually start there, which you know we, we've already started this debate. Let's dive into the physiology of this and whether there are any sort of physiological adaptations. And I'm going to throw something out, and then I know Rob is going to slam me with a bunch of research that he found that he's very excited about.
3: This Damn. is why you're so nervous.
2: But- Like I said, I found it very hard to find studies of this type of workout because let's face it, in the research world, this isn't sexy. Who wants to study the slow one-hour ride? You want to study sprint work, Tabata, something like that. So most of the evidence I found or research I found was where they were comparing some sort of interval work to the boring, moderate intensity ride. And they didn't want to talk that much about the moderate, boring intensity ride which were always at 65% of VO2 max and 60 to 90 minutes and, and just who cares. It's kind of their, their attitude towards it. But what I found interesting was in most of these studies, particularly the ones looking at sprint intensity workouts, they would say, oh, this is great because the adaptations from the sprint work were virtually identical to the adaptations from the modern intensity ride. So you did see improvements in VO2 max. You saw improvements in lactate threshold, whatever, you know, the various markers they were trying to measure. And so they go, well, then sprints are great because it takes less time and you're getting the same gains. But I kind of flipped that around and said, yeah, but you're getting the same gains. You didn't say there were no gains to the moderate intensity ride.
3: Right, right.
2: There actually were. And it was interesting that nobody's pointing that out, that this is that hour boring ride and actually you're seeing adaptations from it.
0: You should keep talking because I want to go back and review your research. I have nothing to back this up at the moment. Mm. Don't, now, don't look at me and ask me to fill in right
2: now. I am <laughs> going to say a lot of these studies were into untrained, and we've always said you take somebody sure. off the couch, you have them do anything, and they're going to improve. So there is the argument: you take somebody who's a much more experienced endurance athlete and have them do that moderate intensity versus the sprint intervals. Are you going to see equivocal results or is that the case where you're going to see the moderate intensity ride does nothing? You can also have the argument, is the sprint interval training going to do that much?
3: Right. From my point of view as a coach, I think so much of what I'm going to come back to in this episode is anecdotal or experiential, right? right? What have we seen in athletes and what have I seen in myself? What have I seen in the people I've coached? Because I can tell you that I've seen a huge variance in the people I've coached. And I can tell you that I've had athletes that benefit incredibly from don't do anything. And part of why they benefit so greatly from that is that their day is really busy and getting on the bike for an hour on those days, as you mentioned, Trevor, is hard to do. It takes a lot of effort. And so if they can just sit there in a in a day and do nothing, they're ecstatic and it makes everything go better. Their life stress comes down, right? All these other things come down that would stay up if they're trying to do this easy ride. And I have other athletes, man, that if I ask them to sit on the couch, they will tell me how awful they feel the next day, no matter what. And so I would love to find some research that points to one side or the other, but I would still say that so much of this is going to be individual because the way I approach the hour easy ride is keep moving. I almost look at it as lubrication because one thing that I do know is that, when you don't ride or you don't train for a few days, though you may not have an influence at all on quote unquote fitness, you always have an influence on feel and how you feel when you've taken two Mm -hmm. days off and not ridden versus how you feel when you've ridden
0: an hour easy those days can be monumentally different. I feel like we just time warp to the end of the episode to a Grant Holicky take home. Well, no, no, because that, I, I
3: think I think that take home would be even more specific than that, right? But what I'm guess I'm throwing out there is that I've seen it be very, very different for different athletes.
2: So, quick backstory here: I've been incredibly frustrated at my inability to find research. I'm glad Rob's actually found some.
0: <laughs> I know, but Grant just leaped over everything I could have possibly no, 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 talked no, about. about what but I'm-
2: but here, here, I've got the unifying theory here: of what Grant just said and the research. <laughs>
3: please please give it to us we're
2: we're about to have a fight here grant just flipped off rob rob slurped his water in response (laughs)
3: it's very
2: classy (laughs) so let's get this this train back on the tracks i was incredibly frustrated not be able to find anything so literally the hour before this episode i'm like i gotta do one more hunt and actually a review that I was reading had a mention of a study. I looked at the title of that study and the title is Refuting the Myth of Non-Response to Exercise Training. Non-responders do respond to higher dose of training. It's a 2019 study. Lead author is, is David Montero. And it was a fascinating study that relates here. So you were talking about some people respond, some people don't. So here they're looking, they're the, the literal definition of non-response, which is people that don't see any sort of improvements from training. And they tried these different training approaches on people. And again, found some were responders, some weren't. And then what they did is, is they took all those people, responders and non-responders and had them add more volume. So it was more frequency of training. All this training was at that low intensity. None of it was long. So it was over the course of the week, just adding 120 minutes, but they were training more frequently. And all of a sudden, all of the non-responders became responders. So they actually make the case that this whole non-responder thing is a myth. And the most important thing is frequency, which to me is this argument for, yeah, even though you're just doing an hour easy and it feels like you're wasting time, the frequency is important. And if all you ever did was interval work and took days off in between, right, right. you might actually get no adaptation.
0: I got a little maybe bone to throw in this good we got and a and, and that's that's this aspect i think that a lot of the research that's being studied here when it's talking about 65% of vo2 max is doing so in a non endurance trained population right and part of me wonders if we actually looked at physiological parameters in these people 65% of vo2 max might be well within normal training zones a zone 2 or even a Sure. Zone three. I don't know. I'm pulling that out of thin air. I, I have nothing to back that up, but it likely is a higher workload, relatively speaking, than we're talking about in trained endurance athletes.
2: Well, since they're doing this by oxygen consumption, theoretically, 65% should be perceptually about the same for everybody they're going to be putting out a, a insanely low wattage if they're untrained.
0: But it's it's relative to them. It, it's yeah. like you and I riding at 200 watts.
2: Yeah, so let me
0: well let me draw this out. One of the questions that I have
3: about this is looking at your research and looking at untrained individuals, the point of the easy ride for an untrained individual would fit beautifully in frequency. More frequency means more training. Mm-hmm. That training is going to benefit that rider. But why are we doing it for the trained rider? We're not doing it for the trained rider for frequency of exercise or an attempt to raise stress on that athlete. We're asking, at least I am, I'm asking well-trained athletes to do easy days to get them to recover. And I'm asking them to recover actively so that they don't feel tight the next day. They don't feel dead the next day. They don't feel blocked up the next day. All of those things. So... I'm looking at this going, okay, that research makes a lot of sense, but it may not be what we're trying to do with the population we're talking to on yeah. this podcast.
2: We raised this before, and I agree with you, is the reason I can't take all the research I found and say this is definitive mm-hmm. is because of how much of it was done yeah. on a, a more sedentary a or lot just of it's a healthy population. Or, it's the same mistake. Like So much of that, that sprint intensity training research is that it improves population. everything the same population. And then they're taking top pros and go, go just do sprints. It's going to improve everything. You go different population.
3: Well, and the same thing's true on the other side of the coin is that when we're talking about moderately trained individuals, I would venture to say that 90% of the listenership of this podcast is above a moderately trained individual in the lab. Moderately trained individual in the lab is three times a week for 45 minutes. That's usually the definition. So if we're saying that, of course, the moderately trained individual needs a whole bunch of base work before they're allowed to do VO2 max work and see the benefit. Well, a trained in population probably already has the base work. So like you have to take everything that's going on in the lab with a grain of salt because it's a different
2: setting. So, I mean, it looks like where we want to get to is talking about where to use these particular rides. Yeah. And that's kind of... if Glad you read the outline. <laughs> then the second part of the outline. Why don't we... Plow through some of the relevant physiology here. And, and, and Rob, you can jump in on this. And then let's get into that. Where is it useful? How does it right. fit into a training plan and, and get there? So I'm going to throw out a couple of things. And then Rob, you can you can jump in any of these or add to this. But a couple important things to keep in mind. One is, we've talked about this before, the importance of autonomic stress. That is, you know, they've shown again and again and again that if you're producing a lot of autonomic stress, and, and I'm not going to dive too deep into the physiology of that, that can push you towards overtraining. You're basically really stressing your nervous system and your nervous system doesn't like it. And they have shown that above what's called your aerobic threshold, it's on-off switch. You start producing autonomic stress. Below that, you don't. So doing interval work is going to produce autonomic stress. But going out and just doing a sweet spot ride is going to produce autonomic stress. And the one thing that that's nice about these slower, shorter rides is... Zero autonomic stress. So if you can get some training gains from them, you can do that without that risk of overtraining. A couple other things to bring up, you know, we've shown again and again and again, stroke volume is one of the most important adaptations in endurance sports. You are maximally stressing stroke volume at that 65%, unless you're a top pro. So again, if you're trying to stress a system, riding at 65% of your, your max, you are already stressing that stroke volume. Another thing important to keep in mind, this is something Dr. Anugosamalan has talked about a lot. When you ask him the value of these low-intensity workouts, he always goes to your, your MCT transporters. These are your transporters for lactate. So there's MCT1 and MCT4. So MCT4, you tend to find on your more anaerobic cells, and their job is to transport lactate out of the cells. And that be an issue if you have a ton of mct4 because you're going to end up with lactate in your blood and it's got nowhere to go so you have this other type of transporter mct1 and you tend to find it on more aerobic tissue that can transport lactate into the cell so that the cell can use that lactate for fuel what you tend to find is the high intensity work really builds mct4 transporters Well, it's that low intensity that builds up MCT1. And that was a really short explanation, but as I just said, this is something that Dr. Inigo Milan is really focused on and it's part of why he really pushes for this low intensity work. So before we move on, why don't we hear from him and more thoughts on what these two transporters are all about.
4: This is why doing lactate testing is a very good surrogate to know what happens at the mitochondrial level. If you have a solid mitochondria and uh, you are able to clear lactate coming from the fast-twitch muscle fibers exported by those transporters that I mentioned earlier, the MCT-4s, and they're imported into the slow-twitch muscle fibers into the mitochondria by another transporter, which is the MCT-1, and they're metabolized there for fuel. So you're not only getting rid of that acidic microenvironment, but you also use lactate as an extra fuel and uh, lactase is a more potent fuel than, than carbohydrates for example traumatic brain injury patients for example they prefer to use the brain prefers to use lactate over glucose and pretty much every cell in the body would like lactate over glucose because it's a much much uh, simpler process to metabolize it so anyways lactase is a great fuel so when you have a good lactic clearance capacity you kill two birds with one stone first you don't accumulate lactate in the acidic microenvironment is lower and therefore the muscle contraction is going to be better and second you use it as a fuel and you spare other fuels too but yeah if you don't have a good uh, mitochondrial function as you said very well you will have no other choice than sending the lactate out to the blood right where it's then utilized burned by almost every cell in the body for fuel again but it's in the blood and, and, and this is what it means that you don't have a good lactic fitness capacity in the muscle.
2: There was something that really caught my attention that made me go back through some of the research. And this became really important to me and is probably gonna be my driving point for the rest of this episode. And then I'm gonna throw it to you guys and we can discuss this. But there was a point in one of these MCT studies that said volume and not duration is what's critical to the development of MCT1. And I had to suddenly do a double take on that and go, what do you mean? And I realize it's it's a real subtle difference that you can overlook, but a very important one. What they're basically saying is the duration of your workout, whether you're doing a one hour workout or a six hour workout, doesn't seem to be all that important. But it's the volume when you're thinking about your weekly volume, that's important. You need to have some big weekly volume. And that really caught my attention. And I went back and went through some studies that I've read a long time ago, and I've quoted a bunch of times in in this show, including some of the research by Dr. Seiler, some of the research by Dr. Larson, and suddenly saw that that was pointed out in some of those studies too. And I can't believe in some ways that I kind of missed this. So there was a 2009 study by Dr. Seiler that said the same thing, where he basically said, We don't know how the length of a training session affects cell signaling, but we know that volume has a big impact. And I think that's really relevant because it could be just accumulating volume, whether you're doing with a bunch of one-hour workouts at low intensity or doing it with some longer workouts. It's actually just the volume that's more important. And there was a very recent study, and we just put up a, a short article by Dr. Stephen Chung on our website, about this study that looked at the two-a-days and basically said two workouts a day, just as good as, as trying to combine that into one workout.
0: See, and this is where things get difficult for me because the conversation, and I think I might need to be pulled back to center on this, the conversation feels like it's shifting a little bit to a zone one in a five-zone model to anything below the first lactate breakpoint which in my opinion is zone 1 and zone 2. Right. In in which case what we're talking about here is just base training of 1 hour as opposed to base training of 4 hours at a time. Sure. And I think that that's a very different conversation. Yeah. Yeah,
3: yeah I, I would I'd say so. I mean there's there's a whole lot of evidence. I mean, we know that you need to train at zone 2 for whatever, yep, we as all much know time as is, possible. Right, right? Yeah. Cuz <laughs> that makes us really good at clearing. That makes us really good at, you know, that's going to have the best influence on our LT. It's going to drive it up the most. And I think that's that's something that needs to almost be repeated at the beginning of every one of these episodes for athletes is remember that zone two is going to drive your LT the highest. It's going to have the biggest impact. We forget that, right? But one of the things that I have seen a lot in people is they get on the bike or they they work out three times a week, four times a week, and they murder themselves four times a week. Right? I watched that athlete go to fatigue way sooner than somebody that's doing same three hard days a week, but with easy riding in between. Of course. Yep. And so right out of the gate, we're going, okay, that easy riding. Everybody in this room just went, of course, to that statement. So that means the whole episode's moot. We all think it's it's worthwhile to do the easy out ride. So my point is that like there's benefit to those easy rides. You're better off doing that than nothing when
0: you're throwing all that intensity in. I agree. I think, though, that if we talk about stimulus for adaptation, oftentimes what we're talking about is the state that your body is existing in as a baseline, your average level of adaptive stimulus, and then the newly load that you're putting on it. It's the difference between the two of those that ultimately drives the adaptation that we're looking for. And so if we say exercise below the first lactate breakpoint has a reduction in autonomic stress. Mm-hmm. Then we know the body is able to handle a lot of that without going into an excessively fatigued state. I don't see a reason that we would want to do that work at zone one instead of zone two, yeah. where our baseline level of stress is going to be higher, meaning our fitness level is ultimately going to be higher. Now, if somebody is only ever exercising at active recovery zone, I will say, then that is their baseline. And one great way for them to get more fitness is to bump that up a little bit while staying below that first lactate so, break point.
2: A couple things I will say to there. I actually made a, a particular point. I have yet to say recovery ride. I have been saying the the short, easier ride. So to me, that is below the VT1. So that is zone one and zone two, particularly because when I get hit with this question of well, what is the value of that ride, everybody who asked me that question getting them to ride in zone two is hard enough Getting them to ride in zone one is next to impossible. So I guarantee you when we're answering this question, we're answering more of the zone two. The other thing is I've been talking about the one th- thing that I brought up is, is the 65%. Yeah. And in a lot of zone models, that's actually used as the break point between zone one and zone two. Sure.
3: Well, one of the things that I think is interesting about this is, is you guys both alluded to it in some way. If we're only doing an hour, we're only doing 45 minutes is there really a great deal of stress created by being in zone two and that instead of zone one? And that's an interesting way to spin Mm -hmm. that question, right? So if we're looking at this and going, so this is so off brand for me because I'm about to suggest doing something or possibly suggest doing something harder than easier. And I'm a huge recovery guy and do it easy and do all that stuff. But if you're not going to strain yourself doing 45 minutes at zone two, and there may be a benefit for being at zone two, maybe you do your recovery
0: rides at zone two. Well, and yeah, at that point, we're just discussing total weekly volume, which which right, we're right, agreeing right. in. Hey, however you can drive that volume up is great. Anecdotally, Grant, something that I've noticed is as athletes improve their fitness mm-hmm. and that zone two that that lt one breakpoint gets pushed up, if the athlete doesn't also move up their workloads. Right their increase in fitness tends to fall off. So let's say the upper end of that zone used to be 175 watts, and now it's 200. If you're still only riding at that original wattage prescription, you don't see it move up past 200 anymore. It sort of stagnates. Well, I am going to put a caveat into that. What you're talking
3: about is a pretty big gap. 175 to 200 is a big jump. And you do have to shift everything when you make that big jump. One of the arguments that I will make to athletes all the time, though, is you're better off missing low than missing high. So 100%. When we're, right? When yes. we're playing with a zone and I look at them and go, you know, five watts too low isn't going to matter. Five watts too high could Makes matter a, a lot. I agree. But then coming back full circle to this, does that five watts matter between zone one and zone two?
2: So my answer to that is I am old school. So I look at that. No. Seat.
0: Thanks. why'd
2: you put old school at the end of that it, it's, a, it's a
0: it's a snow day it's trevor actually pulled up on a sleigh today drawn by horses because he couldn't ride his bike that's how old
2: school he is i'm old school i'm canadian god we could just go with the snow jokes
0: <laughs> they're snot funny
2: Any, anywho so you know, first of all Yeah, I agree that hitting those numbers when you're doing high intensity gets very important. I'm a big believer that there's a value in riding right at that aerobic threshold. But I think when you're talking zone one and zone two, I think you have a big range that you can work in. The only thing I'll stand on there, which is the old school notion, which I I still have some belief in, is there are certain things that start to max out right around that 65% of VO2 max. And if you're just going out for a pure recovery ride, below that if it's a hour ride and it's not just recovery you want to get some work i would say 65 percent or, or a little sure. above that just to make sure you're maxing out that stroke volume Yep. that would be my only thing there we're actually getting into a complex conversation about what intensity you should do these lower intensity rides at dr stephen Siler shared some of his thoughts with us on the topic
5: I do sometimes feel like that, you know, one of the first responses to training is you do get an increase in VO2 max. You do get an increase in that upper limit. So if you express training intensity as a percentage of max and max goes up considerably in the first months or a year of training, then obviously that impacts. that There is a change in what's sustainable metabolic flux for the athlete. And I do think that's part of the reason why An elite athlete can train at 65% of VO2 max and and benefit because 65% of five or six liters a minute is still a lot. It's still a, a big work capacity. If we take totally untrained people again, then probably I would say, let's just get you going. I'm not going to ask you to run for two hours, you know, because in the early phase, so totally untrained, I think you can pretty much do whatever you want with them and they're going to get better. And maybe more high intensity is going to be a way for them to kind of get up to speed. But as soon as you have been training probably six months, then I'm going to start saying, all right, now let's look at how you train. Let's look more carefully at how you train. And so far, with even with recreational Athletes that are running 30 miles a week or or training five hours a week, we've seen that this polarized approach helps. It helps them. If nothing else, it helps them to understand the idea of easy, hard, that they get more variation in their training intensity instead of letting every workout be kind of 45-minute red line. So our data suggests that at least down to recreational five-hour a week or 30, you know, 20, 30 mile a week guys or women, there is still a benefit to be made from looking carefully at training intensity distribution.
2: This was a huge aha moment for me of that volume. You said, you know, we we're talking about volume here and we all recognize the importance of that, but you know, I almost feel like I needed a therapy section here because you know how much I love the long ride. And when I revisited this research, what I saw is it's the volume of low intensity. You do need that. You get adaptations out of that. So that was the one important thing I saw. But it's really the the volume over the course of the week Mm -hmm. or over the training block, not the volume in a particular ride, which is an argument for if you're getting that 10 hours of low intensity, whether it's in 10 one-hour rides or a couple five-hour rides, you could very well end up in the same place.
0: Well, I certainly hope so because we're entering the winter season and my training is typically 48 minutes on the trainer in the morning and 48 minutes on the trainer in the evening. And instead of going out and doing an hour and a half or two hours like I do in the summer, eh, the weather, yeah, yucky. But this is where I'm going to jump
3: in and say, yes, 100% from a pure lab fitness point of view, but we all know that that's not the only thing that has to do with fitness and ability to perform. Those longer rides are important for your brain, your ability to think you can do that. Psychobiological model tells us that those two things are inexorably tied together. So yes, but don't take this as the, I'm going to get rid of the long ride. So I think there's that value that may be unspoken in the studies that says, same but- Actually experiencing hour three to five and how that feels and how you push yourself through it and how you've talked about surviving the bonk and all those other things, that matters a lot depending on what you're training for.
2: And I I appreciate you saying that because you have no idea how much I had to choke on those words as I was saying. (laughs) 10 one-hour rides is the same as two five-hour rides because I'm like, hell no. right? I I want my 10 five-hour rides. But so I agree. And we did a whole episode and yes, there are benefits. But I think the better way to put this is that one-hour ride. Don't think of it as just a recovery ride. No, which it can is often help. And how I sold I sold it to my athletes is there are actually adaptations to it, and you do enough of those, they're additive. No, it's not going to get you to the same place as if you are also including some of those longer rides. But believe it or not, they are going to add up, and you're going to get gains out of them.
3: Well, and I think some of this comes down to the type of athlete we're talking about too. If I'm talking about one of my professional athletes who's training twenty some hours a week, I want Monday to be easy. Like they need a mental break. They need something, you know, hey, we're coming. We're coming down here. Now, I have long said, I don't care whether you ride or you sit on the couch. You need to rest, whatever that is. You need to rest. So, as a coach, I will look at those two options pretty interchangeably. But I know that most of the athletes that I work with are going to want to move. They just feel better when they move. Now, by contrast, a lot of the people that I work with as a master's athlete only are going to be able to find 12 hours total in a week. So taking away one of those hours to sit on the couch, yeah, they're going to miss out maybe on the possibility of some sort of adaptation, even if they're doing it easily and getting a recovery and being able to hit Tuesday hard. So I do think there's a lot of benefit with that.
2: Listeners, this is a great time of year to expand your training knowledge. Join Fast Talk Laboratories now for the best knowledge base of training science on topics like polarized training, intervals, data analysis, sports nutrition, physiology, and more. Join Fast Talk Labs today and push your thinking and your training to all new heights. See more at FastTalkLabs.com join. And now we're getting into the next part. So I think this is a good segue into looking at this in terms of the week, as part of a week. Because I will say, if you're a high-level cyclist and all you do all week is one hour, zone one, zone two rides, you're going to lose fitness.
3: Yeah, and you're going to get smoked when it's time to go hard. Right.
2: (laughs) So you need the high intensity, but going back to that autonomic stress, and this is where there is a lot of research, that produces a ton of autonomic stress. That starts pushing you towards overtraining. And what you see in the research is two high intensity rides per week seems to be about optimal. Three is pretty similar. Anything more than that, and you are pushing yourself towards overtraining. And I don't care if you're training eight hours a week or 20 hours a week, mm-hmm. you just can't handle so much high intensity. So the question here is do you just do your two high intensity sessions and take the rest of the days off? Or do you do these easy one hour rides? And what I'm seeing is. These are complementary. You're yeah. gonna get greater gains. Even if it's just one hour, so you do it, let's say Tuesday, you do the high intensity, and then it's one hour zone one, two on Wednesday, another one of those on Thursday. You do intensity on Friday. Even though those two easiest rides, you're kind of going, Well, that felt like a waste of time. It's actually complementary and, and you're getting benefits.
3: Well, I think you're getting benefits in several different ways, and maybe it's stuff that we can't necessarily quantify. But like like I mentioned earlier, I've, I've seen a lot of people go only hard and sit on the couch, and they, they go into fatigue and overtired much quicker. And maybe that's because they don't have any base training that allows them to clear anything they're doing on the their, high intensity. Their total
0: volume of training is lower. You would presume that their fitness is lower. Right. And so their high intensity is going to hit them harder
3: than it would hit somebody whose general level of fitness is higher. And as we're talking about, you know, if you do those one hour rides, you can gain adaptation and fitness out of them. And that's going to help you because you're in that clearance phase, right? That's that zone one, two thing that we're talking about raises the ability to get rid of all the crap that you're producing. But this comes back to the whole thing with cycling as you brought up at the beginning of it. Everybody wants the MCT four. everybody wants that, but nobody's going to take the time to do the less glamorous stuff that this is how we get rid of this stuff. This is how I use it. Great. But how do I clear this stuff out? And and I've long said this comes back into one of the things that people will hear ad nauseum from me, you know, the, the training montage that Nike puts up for their ads in reality would be boring as hell. Like, you know, training montage videos or commercials for a major brand yeah. would, would be boring because it would just be people doing miles. Just again, what are you doing today? What's special? Nothing. I'm just doing it again. And what are you doing this year? Different. Nothing much. I'm just doing it again. <laughs> right? And and this is one of the things we miss in training is we are constantly listening to athletes and coaches talk about what they can add. What can I add? What can I add? Well, this is something maybe you can add. Add your easy rides. Get a little bit of adaptation out of them and give yourself a chance to just enjoy and ride for fun and ride. Look around. Yep. I, I've... Come to the place in the last probably 10 years of my riding. It took me till I was in my 40s to enjoy the easy ride. And now I go outside. I'm like, this is amazing. I'm not going to hurt. I'm
0: not going to suffer. I get to look around. It's beautiful. I've certainly noticed that as I've started running again recently with the weather turning. I used to just go out and run kind of hard. And it kind of stunk. I'm not going to lie. And I purposely said, what am I doing to myself? I'm just going to run easy. Yeah. It's a heck of a lot more oh, fun. Oh, unbelievably so. I don't mind it anymore. And and one of the main reasons that people won't continue
3: with exercise programs, if we're talking about getting sedentary people to move, one of the main reasons they don't continue with exercise programs is it hurts and it's hard. And we're not spending time trying to find things that people can do that they enjoy, that's pleasant. This country would look like Canada if we got people to understand. Oh, I'm
0: kidding. but I don't know.
5: Where
4: we oh,
5: No, that was a that was a compliment <laughs> oh, to Canada.
0: Okay. I didn't think there was one, so I didn't go there. A oh. <laughs>
3: <laughs> No, I would say Canadians move more than Americans move. Well, no? I think cold. Trevor's we operating system move. just <laughs>
0: froze. <laughs> The look on his face yeah. was like, I don't know if I agree with that one, Grant. Right, but <laughs> it used to be you, the you know, it's the
2: funniest part of it. It's snowing here, it's pretty cold right now, and the whole office has been making fun of me because I have this little portable <laughs> heater that's now sitting by Grant. And when, like, I move rooms in our office building, it goes with, it goes goes and with me, with and you. I am the Canadian.
0: You know what that is, though? That's just experience. You, just, <laughs> you, you need like a hundred foot extension cord. So it's plugged in at all times. <laughs> That's just the experience. That's I, I just else.
2: need to kind of carry it under my arm.
0: <laughs> this is just Trevor knowing how to deal with this. I never, ever, ever, ever do a zone one recovery ride ever. Well, and this comes back
3: to what we were talking about before, the different types of athletes. If you're only putting out, 10 to 12 hours a week, 8 to 12 hours a week. Yeah, I don't see a whole lot of reason to do in a zone one ride. Do the zone two ride and get known adaptation out of it, right? But pointing to your frequency piece, right? Or total time on the bike in a week. I think that makes a, a ton of sense. But I will say this if you are one of those people that is getting a lot of training time in, you know, you're in that ballpark of 15, 16 hours a week, or even I would say above 14, then I think there's a lot of value for the easy recovery day you keep moving right you keep the body well oiled and i would i would speak for the old farts in the room myself and trevor i'm 40 now dude dude we're f- how old are you you're 49 51 thank you okay i'll speak for the old fart in the room i mean <laughs> I, I didn't know he was over 50 so man, that's the old guy but when you start talking about the older i, I i've certainly noticed this that I don't respond well to a day completely off. I feel tight. It feel yep. stiff. I'm not comfortable. So I ride on my easy days.
2: So going back to that study I found literally an hour ago <laughs> about the frequency and showing that more frequent training, even at low intensity, tends to eliminate non-responder effect. Right. You talked about guys that you see or riders that you see that just do high intensity and take the other days off. Yeah. They don't seem to adapt the same way. I would love it if this study was repeated with more experienced athletes where you had some of them doing interval work a few times a week and taking the days off in between and then had another group that did the intervals, but then did that lower intensity rides in between to see what the difference in the adaptations are. My guess is you are going to see very different adaptations. You're well, I think, going to see a greater effect.
0: I think that you will, because if we're talking about a relatively low volume group, then what we're talking about is just increasing overall training volume. Sure. And in general, I think that no matter what, if that's a zone one or a zone two or whatever situation, it's beneficial for you. Yeah. But what I'm really wanting to key in on is not only Grant smashing his elbow on the table, but... In in the athlete for whom increasing volume is probably a diminishing returns situation, mm-hmm. is there benefit? Because the benefit is not driving up the hours more. Right. Is there benefit to this active recovery situation? And I'm going to go on a limb and say it depends. <laughs> well, so I would.
2: I would agree let's with that. go there, and, and you're saying it depends because this is the research that Rob brought that I'm excited it, to I, hear. I
0: am going to say it depends. And it's this, it doesn't make a difference in the whole scheme of things. And the reason is if we look at, and and I looked at multiple studies that look at inflammatory response with cytokines, with looking at markers like C-reactive protein and creatine kinase, There is typically very little difference between active and passive recoveries. So how a lot of these studies are set up, there's certainly some that are looking at active and passive recovery during an interval workout itself. I didn't look at those. What I looked at oftentimes showed up looking at football or soccer, as we would call it in which case there are two matches, 72 or 96 hours apart, and they looked at what did players do in between those matches? One group wouldn't do anything maybe another group would do cold water immersion or massage, and then a group would do active recovery, typically at this relatively low, what I would consider a zone one workload.
2: And in this case, we are talking about active recovery being an easy, easy workout the day after something. Exactly. Exactly. Because sometimes active recovery is referred to, you finish a race and then you do active recovery right after the race. So So this This is like day
0: one is a soccer match. Day two is an easy spin on the bike. Day three is another soccer match. Mm -hmm. Are you better or not. And nine times out of 10 in these studies, there's no difference in their performance, in their inflammatory markers, in any of these when we have active and passive recovery. But there is some physiological differences if we look a little bit more acutely. We know that blood lactate decreases faster during active recovery situations than it does in passive. But that's only when we look at it in a relatively short time course because you right. give somebody a couple is hours. is cleared. Yeah, okay. exactly. It's back down to baseline anyway. So that's why these studies that are looking in between individual bouts of do a hard interval, take a quick break, do a hard interval that's why it it doesn't even matter because all of that stuff goes back down to baseline anyway.
2: Let me just interrupt you because that's something we've never said that is such an important point. Everybody's had the high school coach who has told you, you need to do that easy workout the next day to clear all that lactic acid out of Uh. your your muscles. Again, there's no such a thing as lactic acid in the human body. We're talking lactate. But even there, if you do absolutely nothing, if you do the worst recovery in the world... After having done huge sprints and built up a ton of lactate, it's all gone with an hour or two. Yeah. Brent Bookwalter spent over a decade as a top-level cyclist. Let's hear if he shares Rob's opinion that recovery rides might not be all that beneficial. For somebody who's training less, let's say they're only doing eight hours a week, do you feel there's a value to those easy recovery rides?
6: It depends. I think on the person and the schedule. I don't think a recover doing or not doing a recovery ride is going to make or break you from you know becoming the the season you want to have or the result you want to get through my career I definitely saw there's definitely pro riders out there who don't really like recovery rides and they do more off days and for them it works one of my teammates from the past few years that is a high caliber GC rider he would often just say no nah, no recovery ride just you know for him it was no shamming it up no water bottles no messing with the bike you know it's, a lot of it's the mental recovery that takes place too. So it's pros and cons. If um yeah, you know, the, the bike is also it's it's therapeutic time as well for some people, if you do have the time. So to get on there and be able to enjoy the bike and just relax and look around and know you don't have any agenda and put some blood through the legs and the body and burn a few calories, that can be beneficial and help you recover, but it's not absolutely essential.
2: No, that's an interesting point. So sometimes as opposed to Adding that little extra stress of kidding up and getting on the bike, you're just better sitting on the couch and getting some rest, you're saying?
6: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'd say what I would start to do the last few years is I would, um, if I had like a full recovery day, I would sort of like alternate them easy ride, off day, easy ride, off day, depending on what was going on. But yeah, I think it's a great time to give some attention to those like often neglected areas too that can actually have more impact on the training. Like you could ride for an hour, which is about, If you ride for an hour, it's an hour and a half investment because you're getting up, changing, messing around with bike stuff. You know, If you can spend that hour, the hour and a half, if you can line up and plan your in-ride and and strategize your post-ride nutrition for the whole next block of training or the whole next week in that hour and a half, that's probably going to give you more benefit than turning the legs over on the bike for an hour, hour and a half.
2: That's a good point. I'll also say one other thing. I, I have noticed that is a difference between top level pros and, and more amateur riders is when a, a pro has a recovery day, they can really recover.
6: Yeah, and it's easy. I mean, uh, I think it's difficult, which you know, as you coach athletes. But the the verbiage and the wording is important. Is for some people, a recovery ride or an easy ride is the same. For other people, it's not. If the day is really about recovering and regeneration and rest. And you're gonna go out on the bike. It's got to be easy. And I, I can't tell you how many recovery or easy rides I've done in my career where I either rode too hard and hated myself for it the next day because I didn't recover or I just let whoever I was riding with ride away from me and said, well, you know that didn't work. Yeah, probably a common misconception that people don't understand how how slow and easy that um, we would ride when it's recovery time.
2: Yeah, I have people they don't believe me when I tell them what my average wattage is on my my easy recovery rides. Like yeah. I've had rides where I've gone out for an hour and a half and I average 120 watts. Sure. Yep. Yep. Give us just a couple uh, quick comments about this foundation that you're running.
6: Yeah. So I am, I am working with the Pro Cyclist Foundation. And that is a, a fairly new project. was founded and continues to be based actually in Boulder. Now they just moved over from Denver to Boulder. It was a foundation that I started as loosely advising and consulting back when I was still racing. And they were connecting with different pros in the sport, many American. And then um, when I retired from racing, I didn't have any plans to jump right into anything. And actually, I had done a ton of work about finally getting to the point where I was quite happy to have nothing in terms of processing and uh, moving forward time. But the, the opportunity came up to do a little more formal work with the Pro Cyclist Foundation. And yeah, I've kind of made an exception to that because I felt like it was it was sort of the right fit. I knew I definitely didn't want to go into the team car, be back on the race circuit, but you know, staying connected to the cycling world and, and largely what I'm tasked with the Pro Cyclist Foundation right now is serving as an intermediary and a connection and sort of liaison between the athletes and the programs that the foundation serves and the foundation itself. So that's something that um, I'm still quite connected to. And the, the experience in my mind is fresh of traveling the path from junior to collegiate to professional. Yeah, And I'm enjoying sharing my experience there and, and reconnecting and keeping that line of communication open with many of my peers and then also having the excuse now to you know, try to get to know some of the women more or some, some of the different discipline riders and broaden my, my horizons and perspective there. So yeah, it's a nice combination of new enough, but um, also familiar enough that I'm not totally squirming out of water either.
0: So I also looked at a few other studies outside of just this inflammatory side of things where they were looking at delayed onset muscle soreness domes. And this one was a little bit more murky. In some of the direct measurements of domes, there was an improvement with, and this study looked at medium intensity continuous exercise. Gotta love, gotta love that term. I personally <laughs> hate it, but I know what they mean. If anything, uh, strength recovery actually improved 72 or 96 hours after baseline. So there is one study that shows, Hey, doing something active is potentially beneficial. The thing that really maybe put some benefit, really, maybe that doesn't make any sense for this episode. (laughs) Exactly. Is that exercise itself, right? And I'm talking, I'm focus solely on active recovery for this exercise itself is going to increase an analgesic effect within our body. And that's potentially where this domes situation comes in. And that in itself could improve performance and be worthwhile because you're just less sore. You don't hurt as bad. Exactly. And that analgesic effect takes place because of serotonin increases in the body and then also how endogenous in our own body opioids tend mm-hmm. to work. Mm-hmm. In that situation, we don't have to actually actively recover the affected muscles. No, we just have to move. We just have to move. And so you can be really sore from swimming or mm-hmm. from running because I'm sore from swimming. Uh, <laughs> so you can be really sore from running, have quads that are on fire, can't walk up and down stairs. You can go the for a swim one. with a kickboard, yep. not even use your legs. Yep. And probably be in a better place because of this analgesic effect. What he meant was with a pull buoy, not with a kickboard. For anybody who's
3: a swimmer, but that,
0: that's how much I know about
3: swimming. Yeah, but I, I think that anecdotally this speaks to it. You know, I think we've all been in that place where we done a lift or something, and we're like, oh, we're gonna move the next
0: day. Or I did, oh, that probably helped me with the homes. And yeah, there's a reason it does. I love what you just said. That probably helped me. Yeah. Which is my last point and that is if people remember back to the You're going episode to steal this point from me it is if pe- if people remember back to the episode we did with Scott Frey the placebo effect was a big part of this mm-hmm. and so why i said it depends is i think it matters if you think wow. active recovery is beneficial for you
3: well let's 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 look at almost all the stuff that's coming out in recovery in general i'm sorry to cut you off maybe You're this dead? is what you were going to say but we can look at the boots. We can look at recovery protein. We can look at, there is all this research starting to come out on these things that say they don't really matter. But if you think they matter, they matter. The whole ice bath thing, right? Like, oh, ice baths don't help. Ice baths don't help. But then there's still going to be this population that, that squares by an ice bath because they think it helps them. Now, I think there's aspects of the ice bath that do help that we aren't looking at, but that's neither here nor there. But that's a major piece of all of this stuff. And this is what I'm trying to get at when I'm talking about people that are doing a big volume already. Why move instead of sitting on the couch? Well, now we've got a little bit of evidence that the analgesic effect is going to help because of serotonin and some of the other things that are going to go in there. I'm probably just going to feel better on a Monday if I moved.
2: So I'm going to add a couple of things. To this. First of all, very important that everybody understands you only get DOMS. That's the delayed onset muscle soreness. When you do heavy eccentric activity. So running, if you're a triathlete, you're a runner. If you're in the weight room, if you're doing plyometrics, you're going to get a lot of that. No real eccentric movement in cycling. So cyclists don't really experience DOMS, which is why you don't see DOMS study on cyclists.
0: And, And to follow up on your point there, I'll let you get back to what you're saying. The research that looks at this DOMS, what they did was they put people in essentially a mechanical advice and they tried to extend their knee they tried to do a, a a quad lift and the machine was stronger than they were and it pushed them down right that it, it's a very painful thing to go yeah. through and i remember when when we were like meat-headed high school athletes we would do this bicep curl workout where you lifted the weight up and somebody physically pulled it down wow. when you were yep. on the preacher bench trevor knows what i'm talking about i've never been so i was probably like rabdo in my biceps after stuff like oh that my but God need trevor back to
2: you yeah well worst thing i ever saw in my life i was in the weight room and i saw some guys trying to play with this and this guy was doing bench press and the way he was doing it was too heavy a weight that he couldn't lift and he'd have somebody that would help hold it yeah to prevent him from dropping on himself and and then it was just kind of that slow drop down and this guy was overdoing it and he tore his chest muscle it completely separated oh God, why, why, why? We, we used to like
0: run the stack on the preacher bicep thing, yeah. you know, start at 80 yeah. pounds, start at 200 pounds. Oh, no, we but all then, did that. But then yeah. by the end of the workout, you know, you, and then you would go easier, easier. At the end, you couldn't concentrically no. curl 10 pounds. Yeah. That's how destroyed you were. Oh, it kills you. Well, you couldn't do anything the next day. So what was the benefit? Well, you know.
2: So I wasn't actually expecting to go here, but you guys have really gotten into the immunology side and the, the recovery side after you've done a lot of damage to muscles. And there's a reason a lot of this stuff doesn't work and there's mixed results about that easy ride the next day. There's actually a very complex process that happens when you've done a lot of training and damage your muscles. There's, it's a am going to give it the very, very short version. There's three stages to it. But the first stage, you have type of immune cell called macrophages. They basically mount the response. They come into your muscles. And first, they take on what's called a, a phagocytic phenotype, meaning... They come in, they find all the damaged tissue and they consume it. They're they go and break you. it down. They basically eat you. Then once all that damaged tissue is gone, they change their phenotype to one that promotes the rebuilding. And that's the key phase where they go, Okay, now we've taken out all this damaged tissue, now we need to rebuild it. And hopefully it rebuilds it bigger and stronger. That first stage is important because if you delay that first stage, you can actually get scarring in your muscles. But there are cases where that response is too much and those macrophages come in and they start damaging healthy tissue. And it means it's that much longer before you recover. So what you want is something when you're trying to recover from a fair amount of damage, you want something that's not going to interfere with that phase, but it's also going to prevent the over-response where you're starting to damage healthy tissue. And that's actually one of the theories behind compression. Compression seems to help an effective transition from that phase one to the productive phase two. I haven't seen any evidence that says going out and doing an easy ride has any impact on it whatsoever.
0: But easy rides in compression boots would? I want
2: to watch you do that with them fully inflated. <laughs> so so my question is, but my question is, is the
3: evidence pointing to compression by the actual compression or is it by the increased venol? return
2: So that's one of the questions that's been really interesting. So the, the original theory is it just improves blood flow so right. you're getting the right that's going to help the, the right cells get to the tissue right But there's been some interesting studies that that doesn't explain where you actually see with compression a change in the, right. the cytokines, which are the signalers of the immune system. Somehow the compression causes a change to a more anabolic signaling. Than the previous very destructive signaling.
3: And the reason I asked that was that I remember that movement creates increased venal flow right. and creates compression in the musculature.
0: Well, guys, I have compassion for the question of compression, but I think we got to get back on the movement side, Grant. So keep on trucking.
2: So okay. let's... <laughs>
0: I just wanted to say that. It It wasn't good. It was terrible. I I wrote it down too. (laughs) (laughs) I
2: said to myself, I can't forget this. Oh my God. Yeah. So let's wrap this up because I think we could continue two hours having this discussion because it's such an interesting one. There is not definitive science.
0: This is a debate, not a discussion.
2: Yeah, it's a debate, which is great. So why don't we start Summing up what we we all think of this and then move into as our kind of our take homes, our suggestions on what you should be doing and whether you should be doing that one hour ride or you should be sitting on the couch or in the compression boots.
0: I think you should be doing the one hour ride, but I think it's dumb to do it at zone one that people ought to bump that up to zone two because then we're just increasing your overall volume. If you're one of Grant's pros, or if you're just significantly better than I am, then certainly do an active recovery ride if it's going to make you feel better and help you with other things. But don't do it because the science is saying you have to do it to clear these metabolites, because frankly, that's probably not very true.
3: I'd agree with that completely. My my biggest take-home on this is you need to have days that you are shutting down that you're recovering mentally and physically we all are going to need those days if if you're somebody like rob who is deriving a lot of joy and deriving a lot of just clearness of head because you get to do an hour ride like that's one of those things that is probably a major part of your life and your happiness then continue to do that ride if you're somebody who man that our ride is going to add a huge amount of stress to my Monday just to find the time to get it done. Don't do the ride. Just hang out, relax a little bit. I think one of the things that we really miss in all of this with athletes is, yes, we want them to have recovery days. We want them to have days that come down, but that extends so far beyond just the bike. And so finding I've moved to having athletes have their recovery day Sunday. So there's nothing to do. There's no work. There's no stress. There's no anything. Can I get the parasympathetic nervous system back in? Can I get them to sleep? Can I get them to smile? Can I get them to have a good time? So I think it's really extraordinarily personal as to what you should do on these days. I've found for me at 49 years old, if I don't move on a day, I feel really tight the next day. And I don't like that feeling. So I like to move.
2: So I'm going to bring up one other bit of research that we, we didn't talk about because I just wrote an article answering the question, if you're only training five, six hours a week, is polarized training still effective? And I found actually a bunch of studies on that comparing polarized training to sweet spot training to a bunch of different training approaches with the athletes doing just under five hours of training a week. And what they found was polarized was just as effective and in a couple cases more effective. And if you're doing less than five hours a week, polarized, you're doing very, very, very. little high intensity yeah. and a yeah. whole lot of that zone one, zone two riding yeah. or training. And yet it's still effective. Yeah. So I do think those workouts are very valuable. What I've got from everything that I looked at in front of this conversation is we know that the low intensity, and high intensity both promote that PGC-1 alpha pathway, which is what produces most of your endurance gains. They promote it through different means. The way they hit that pathway is differently. And I've, I've explained that in different episodes. I won't go into that today. And it's additive. So just doing the high intensity, you don't get quite the same gains. Just doing low intensity, you don't get quite the same gains. So you need the the additive effect. The thing that I found fascinating from all this, which is a slight revision of what I've said before, is I've always been a big believer in those long workouts. And what you're really seeing here is it's about the volume, which is how much low intensity you're doing over the week, more than the lengths of the ride. So while I'll still say that one long ride is valuable, what I'm seeing is a lot of those gains you get from low intensity, you're going to get by doing a bunch of one hour rides. And and that gives you a value to those rides.
3: Yeah, I I'm a... Big believer in what Rob's doing right now is that like morning ride and the evening ride. I think I saw somewhere recently there's some evidence that weight loss, metabolism is increased by frequency, multiple workouts in a day. And um, so that kind of goes right into what we're saying with this too. Move, 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 move. Good point. Grant. Keep on trucking.
2: All right. We that have any... was another episode of Fast Talk. <laughs> <laughs> There's my answer. I was about to ask. Do we have anything else to say? Grant, take us away.
3: <laughs> that was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcast. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk, especially mine, are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com or tweet us with at Fast Talk Labs. Head to FastTalkLabs.com to get access to our endurance sports knowledge base, coach continuing education, as well as our in-person and remote athlete services. There's one more line. I know there's one more line. (laughs) For Grant Holicky. No, for Rob
0: Pickles (laughs) and Trevor Connor. I'm Grant Holicky. That's all, folks. (laughs) (laughs) yibba dibba dibba